It's go time. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Heath, you're the big Bomber fan in this uh, podcast. Are the Bombers on the verge of a dynasty? Dynasty is always a funny word in sports, and I never know quite where to put it. I would say winning three out of four would be in that dynasty territory, especially in the CFL. Okay, this is the, the, the fourth time that a team has played in four consecutive Grey Cups. Most famously... Of course, the Edmonton franchise, now known as the Elks, played in six consecutive, winning five of them in the late 70s, early 80s. The Tiger Cats of the 50s and 60s played in a string of them as well. So we're going back 40 plus years at this point since we've seen something like this. It has to be considered dynasty territory. Winning certainly solidifies it. Even a loss they've made four in a row is pretty spectacular. You think of the Alouettes in the early 2000s, and they were so close to going to maybe eight in a row. The teams that you talk about, yes, you're right. Edmonton, 1977 to 82, six straight. Uh, the Regina Rough Riders, this really is going back. 1928 to 1932, five in a row, all losses. But again, CFL didn't exist as it does now. And there was a strong Eastern bias to be fair. The other team, the Hamilton Tiger Cats, who were often the foes of the Blue Bombers in those uh, 1950s and 60s, uh, five straight from 61 to 65. Now, but for the Ottawa-Edmonton Grey Cup of 1960, most likely we could have seen Winnipeg and Hamilton go at each other for five straight. We could have. And if you look at those two teams of the Blue Bombers and the Tiger Cats of that era... Yes, the Tiger Cats played in more consecutive Grey Cup games, but I would consider the Bombers more the dynastic team, given that they won four of them in that stretch. Hamilton went to, I believe it was nine Grey Cups in 11 years, but only came away with three wins. One against BC, two against Winnipeg, the bookends against Winnipeg, basically, in that set from 57 to 67. Now, you're right, the Blue Bombers, after losing in 57, one in 58, one in 59, one in 61, one in 62. So they took four out of five. And but for a fumble at the end of the West Final by Kenny Plain, who was playing with a broken hand, and that hand got hit, and he fumbled the ball at the goal line, the Blue Bombers would have been in the 1960 Grey Cup as well. And they could have had five in a row and been the first team to do that. They could have, and and we have to appreciate the modern era, and you can look at at different eras. You can look at pre-forming of the CFL. You can look at post-World War II. Free agency plays such a larger role now, and player movement as well. So even those teams in Edmonton's dynasty didn't see the amount of player movement that we're seeing in the league today. So what that organization has done to put this team together and consistently compete and consistently make it into this final game, this is really something special. There's another way to look at it too, and the Blue Bombers have done it in a salary cap era. CFL does a forensic audit of teams. So this is for real. They have to abide by it. And you get penalties, and they are severe in cases. 
Edmonton team of the late 70s also was flush with money because they had just opened Commonwealth Stadium and they were drawing 50,000 people a game. Well, at that point, Montreal and Toronto were the three big stadium teams. Well, guess who were going to the Grey Cups in that era and who was winning them in that era? BC comes on board with BC Place and they start going to Grey Cups. So the small market teams, Winnipeg finally gets back there in 84, but Saskatchewan disappears after 76 for 13 years. And Calgary is nowhere to be seen. It's all the smaller market teams, Ottawa, that get beat up by the big stadium guys who get much, much more money coming from gate receipt. And that, without a cap, makes it very difficult to compete. It did. And we look at the parity and, and what you want to see in a league now is all teams being competitive. You're going to have some anomalies. We look at Winnipeg's record last year, Toronto's record this year, during the regular seasons, of course, neither one of those teams successfully won a Grey Cup, but they separated themselves from the rest of the league. But you look below them and there's a a lot more of a tight race in those standings. Not to be dismissed in, in this Winnipeg run, and interestingly enough, not currently under contract for next year is GM Kyle Walters. Speculation is starting to bounce around a little bit of whether he will be back or not. Walters himself stated today during media day that he wants to be back. Coach Mike O'Shea said he believes that Kyle Walters will be back. I expect to hear some news very shortly after the Grey Cup within the next week or two as to what that future looks like. We're not privy to any of the negotiations. Apparently there hasn't been any negotiations ongoing according to Kyle Walters himself, but that is going to be something to watch here for the rest of the month. I'm curious as to why. Is there some sort of discord between him and the club president? And is that impacting negotiations? They have been together for a while. They have. We're looking at 10 years now that the this group of Walters... Wade Miller, the president, and Mike O'Shea, the head coach, have all been working together in this organization. Teddy Gavea is an assistant general manager right now, also a, a Canadian who knows the game and knows Canadian talent. You have to think that if they do go away from Kyle Walters, Teddy Gavea will be the next man up. But if O'Shea and and Walters both want him back, I think there should be a way to get a deal done you're going to be very quickly into the situation where the team's going to have to look at re-signing players right away. And then you get into that free agency window coming up beyond that. So I expect, as I said, to hear some news very shortly for what he's done and what he's helped build in Winnipeg. It would be great to see him continue, but he certainly would leave without any negativity at this point, given what he has, has meant to this team. It is one of the remaining questions that will have to be answered. I believe that the Blue Bombers have got to make a move one way or the other as to how they proceed with Kyle Walters. And if and if Wade Miller just doesn't see a future for him, then let him know immediately so that he can look elsewhere if he want, so chooses. It's uh, only fair to him. And the Blue Bombers may decide to go a different direction because aside from the fact that there's been success Sometimes you just have to refresh for the sake of. You have to 
sort of get some new ideas in the building. You do. And, and we've talked over the last couple of seasons about the age of that veteran core of the Bombers as well. So I would suspect, especially if they win this Sunday, that there's going to be some retirement announcements in the near future. There's going to be some more pieces to the puzzle to come in. So maybe a, a fresh start, a fresh look at general manager is something they're going to need as well. I, I don't see the Bombers maintaining this level for too many more seasons if they if they can. This, as we said, a, a four four year stretch of making the championship game in this era is unprecedented. And where do they start looking at what changes need to be made? We know. Adam Bighill, for example, 35 years old, carted off in the Western final and his status for this game coming up is unknown. Is he done after this season? Stanley Bryant's another big part of that puzzle on that offensive line. We can go through a list of guys that have been there for a lot of years and it looks like it might be inching towards a, maybe not a complete rebuild, but certainly a retooling for the Bombers. You can add Nick Dembski into that mix because he's been away from practice more than he's been at practice in the last month. Yeah, there there are going to be changes. I think the Blue Bombers are going to hit that wall where they're going to get too old very fast and suddenly instead of 14 and 4, they may flop to 4 and 14. Now that's a bit drastic. You get my drift that change waits for no one when time is involved. And and the other, just kind of talking about hiring and, and announcements and that sort of thing, I would expect shortly after the Grey Cup, the head coach position in Saskatchewan will start to amp up as far as interviews and that sort of thing. Because I, as I mentioned on last week's show, I believe there are some candidates that are still active in the playoffs and were active last week that are going to garner some interest for the Rough Riders. You'll be looking at a slate of interviews possibly in those last couple of weeks in November and perhaps an announcement on head coach very soon after that. A very classy move by Jeremy O'Day. All this speculation about who was going to get interviewed, he has categorically stated and he is stuck with this, that he's not talking to anyone that's involved in the football playoffs right now. He's, he's not even going to come close to it because he wants them to focus on what they need to to get their team's through the playoff structure. Now, Toronto is out of the mix, so he could theoretically start talking to anyone there. But my guess is he's going to wait for the Grey Cup to finish, let everybody sort of unwind from the season, and then begin the discussions. And he's in the driver's seat, given how many people have stepped up and said, I want that job. It's almost like a a riches that you don't expect, but Saskatchewan... Love it or hate it as a franchise, depending on where you are. This is a hotbed for football, and people want to be a part of that. It has really, really been fun to watch over the last couple of weeks because not only do you get the names being tossed around that are on current CFL coaching staffs, there are names that have popped up. Henry Burris was one name that came up. John Ryan probably jokingly tweeted earlier this week that he would be interested, but you never know. Um, So some blasts from the past that are not actively with the CFL teams at this point in time, but have also expressed interest in returning to Saskatchewan. The the memories and the the tradition of the Rough Riders is a strong strong tide pulling them back to Regina. 
it is something that a lot of people covet is to be here for this. And the idea that uh, Jeremy O'Day is taking his time and being patient to me shows you what type of person he is, that given the time and given the opportunity that he didn't have the first time when Chris Jones suddenly resigned, he is going to weigh everything appropriately and then make a determination. You have to think he's assembling a list of names right now and weighing pros and cons of, of who to interview and even trying to determine how many to interview at this point. There's We could sit here and list off 10 names that would be not an unrealistic possibility as a head coach, but I don't see them interviewing 10 candidates. You're likely looking at a list of, of five or possibly fewer than that, but maybe O'Day wants to to pursue all options and he's going to be having a, a string of interviews uh, and a lengthy list of candidates. The number I've heard that are going to be interviewed is somewhere around eight. And then after that, there will be a second set of interviews from the ones that really stand out. We shall see. The Edmonton Elks are in the news because there is some speculation about them maybe pursuing private ownership. Now, Rick Lawlisher, who had been brought in as an interim president of the club to manage things, has now been tasked for another year and maybe to work with the team to determine what course of action is next and what is viable. The fact that they're looking at private ownership or at least some sort of hybrid model is very interesting. Now, Lawlisher, of course, was in BC when that ownership turned over from David Braley to Omar Daman. The idea that one of the three community-owned teams that are out there is looking to move away from it, that's not new. Winnipeg toyed with it 10 years ago. They did not go that direction. They came very close. Calgary Stampeders were, have moved away from it. Now they're under corporate ownership. This is not unusual and nor is it to be regarded as such. The the big thing for the Elks, and this is sort of like an unfortunate series of events, you had 2020 and all of that that happened to the CFL. And then you had a team that could not win at home and struggled on the road and wound up in last place since. And that didn't help with gate revenue. And we know that gate drives everything. So where Edmonton in the late 70s and early 80s could sign checks for anything, their balance is not as great as it once was. Now, there was talk that they had a $10 million reserve, whether or not that's been eaten into. Uh, The Rough Riders back in the 80s, the Stampeders back in the 80s, both had uh, season ticket challenges that they had to go to telethons and try to drive up the fan base. In both cases, it worked. Have the Elks thought of that? Most likely. Do they want to go that route? Probably not. So with Lawlisher right now, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes discussion about where this ownership is going to go. Personally, and I guess this is being somebody who's lived in the prairies their entire life, I I do like the community-owned teams and the structure of them. I guess if you're looking at interest in privatizing it shows to some degree the strength of this league as well. We've gone through new ownership in BC. We've gone through new ownership in Montreal. Randy Ambrosi mentioned earlier in his State of the League address that they are speaking with a very interested potential owner of a 10th team in the East as well. 
So there, there is enough interest in owning CFL teams that there might be some, some private options that are worth exploring. I, I would like to see the Elks continue the way they have. And, and I know the struggles of the last couple of years does make that board of directors have to look at the bottom line and reevaluate where things are. It looks like they have gained a little bit of momentum towards the end of this 2023 season. They have a, a likely bona fide star in Trey Ford coming back as a new face of the franchise. So that might peak enough interest to reinvigorate the community spirit in Edmonton and help to right the ship as far as that, uh, that deficit that they've seen over the last couple of years goes. And again, as I started this with my preamble, they've had a very rough go of it because of 20, 21, 22, and now 23, where things just, they couldn't go more wrong in so many different ways for that franchise. You're right. They did show signs of life coming out of the, the Labor Day weekend where they took out the Stampeders for one and then started to get back into the mix and attendance came back as a result of that. I kind of think you're, that with Trey Ford there and he's still on a very f- team-friendly contract, he would be fantastic for your season ticket drive. One of the things that came out of the State of the League address is that the stat system still isn't up to speed. This speaks to two things. And, and I know there was some talk about this at the press conference. I, If it was me, I would never have abandoned what you have. I would have run this in parallel. They said it wasn't probably tenable to do both. I don't know that that was exactly the way I would look at it, but it is more expensive, more time-consuming. Maybe it would have tasked the people doing the stats too much to have to enter two different data points, but you could have figured out in a different way where the old system goes out first, the new system comes out second. And there you go. The other part of it is that Genius Sports really got, in a sense, a a real rude awakening to how significantly different Canadian football is to American football, college or pro. I will give... Commissioner Randy Ambrosi, some credit when the question was asked and it was the first question thrown to him at his State of the League address, he took ownership of it and admitted that there was failure. He admitted that it is not to the level where they wanted or believed it was going to be. And he said they took a calculated risk that didn't pay off. There is, by everything we've seen, some great tools with this new system that once fully implemented are going to be a bit of a wow factor and change how we evaluate information and the amount of information that we will be able to get as fans, as media, as players, as coaches, everybody involved. There are growing pains with that and we're we're certainly experiencing them now. They are going to have a, a lengthy off season where they need to invest the time to get this right, and that may mean running simulations to to see where the data is. I, I'm definitely not an IT guy. That's not not my strength, so I can't even imagine what is involved in in this process. But the short term pain for long term gain is still visible in the future. It's just that the the short term pain 
has been a little bit more painful than the league had anticipated. To be fair, though, in the last, I would say, eight weeks, the stats packages that we get, where in the first part of the season, we get an error code coming back to us saying, oops, this wasn't right, this didn't come out right. Steve Daniel and Jeff Creever were just going crazy trying to catch everything and correct it so that we had relevant and accurate stats. In the back half of the season, maybe they've gotten better at catching it before the package comes out. Uh, I just, I am amazed that they dealt with this and with such class. You never heard a complaint from either one of them. This was huge for all the crews to try to figure this out. And the top two just took it on the chin for what it was worth because they're the face of the stats department. It wasn't their call, but they did everything possible to make it work. In the most part, the real-time stats are still where the bugaboo is, where on game day during the game that there are sometimes discrepancies. It's not that they're not being accounted properly. In other words, if it was a second and seven and they got eight, it's down on the sheet properly. It's just how was that being processed into the computer and how does it output it? And that's where some of the problems are. It's more for game day betting especially, but it's also for the guys doing the broadcasts. Now, having said all of that, if you're doing a broadcast and and you think that Chad Kelly has thrown nine completions for 108 yards and you find out the next day he actually completed 10 for 112, does it really make a difference? It doesn't. It's the the real time stuff can be frustrating. I know the weekend of the semifinal games, I wasn't in front of my TV the entire day, so I was on my phone trying to get some information. And before the BC Calgary game had even started, they had posted a final score on that one. It, it happened to match the Montreal Hamilton game, so obviously it was just a a cut and paste more than anything, but. You know, I, I I was a bit surprised to look. I'm like, oh, what time does that game start? Pulled up the phone and saw a final. And I thought, well, the other game just ended two minutes ago. This isn't real, but what is going on? And there was another situation where they showed a quarterback had 18,000 passing yards in that game currently as well. So the, those little glitches, if we're able to just kind of laugh them off this year and, and understand and accept that it's the growing pains of implementing this new system, Nobody's going to lose sleep over it other than the people that are trying to implement this system themselves. We'll get through it. I do think they need to take the time to make sure it is right moving into kickoff for next season. Even TSN itself makes mistakes. They had the little banner showing the best seasons by a quarterback in terms of win-loss ratio. And they showed Kenny Plain playing in the 40s. Well, Kenny Plain didn't come to the CFL until the 50s. So there was no way he had that kind of stat. And they got it corrected by the time they went back to it during the game. And they had an appropriate photo of Kenny. Ultimately, everybody makes mistakes. Own them and move forward. I just, I am so impressed with the CFL stats department. They have been absolutely amazing to us. And anytime we have a request... And I can't thank them enough. Second down. Two games in the Canadian Football League last weekend. And boy, do we have some stuff to talk about. 
The Montreal Alouettes upset the Toronto Argonauts 38-12, and it all started on the opening drive where Marc-Antoine Ducroix picks off a sidearm pass from Chad Kelly and goes 101 yards the other way for the interception touchdown. It just set the tone for the game. The Argonauts never seemed to get sorted out. Chad Kelly had his worst game as an Argonaut. I don't know if I can talk enough about the difference maker that Marc-Antoine de Croix has been for the Montreal Alouettes this year. What a breakout season. A French-Canadian star in Montreal. It's absolutely something that the Alouettes should and are embracing. And and really set the tone for this game. And And I mentioned last week, Cody Fajardo in that offense wasn't likely to put up a lot of points. But if the defense can keep them in it, they've got a chance. And wow, the defense and special teams delivered with 21 points of the 38 scored for the Alouettes. Nine turnovers by the Toronto Argonauts. One forced fumble by Sean Lemon. Four interceptions and four turnovers on downs. This was a dominant, dominant performance by that defense. KB and Anto was the other Alouette that took a 22-yard interception back for a touchdown. It seemed like every time Toronto did something to get back in the game, immediately Montreal had a response, whether it was Anto's interception for a score or James Letcher with the kickoff return right after a Toronto touchdown. It just didn't matter. Whatever happened, the Alouettes were going to have an answer. And it was something that you talked about in the last podcast. The Alouettes defense had to step up for them to win. Well, they did in spades. Fajardo, 18 of 25 for 175 yards. Not a bad day. Chad Kelly, 21 of 36 for 246. Well, 21 completions was almost his average throughout the season. 246 yards, a little less than normal, but the big thing, four interceptions, two went for quick sixes. To his credit, Chad Kelly put it on his own shoulders and said, that was on me. That wasn't the rest of the team. The Toronto defense did everything they could to try to keep them in the game. They did. You can't fault the the Argonauts defense by any means in this one. They sacked Cody Fajardo seven times. You've got some some big time players on that Argonauts defense that had solid games. But when the other team's defense puts points on the board and their special teams gets that return touchdown, those are the momentum swings that forced Chad Kelly to try to do too much. And I believe he got himself in trouble in those situations of of really trying to be the difference maker. Whereas Cody Fajardo played a smart game. Yes, he got knocked down a lot, but he didn't throw the big interceptions that cost him. He managed everything well. They had a little bit of help from William Stanback, but not a huge running game there either. They just were consistent and, and didn't make the mistakes. And this just happened as we're podcasting is that it was revealed that Chad Kelly had actually had a concussion and maybe as early as the first quarter in this football game, that may have explained partly why he had such a bad day. Now there are going to be some questions that come up about why he wasn't put into concussion protocol, why he wasn't pulled from the game earlier. The reports that we are reading say that they were unsure of exactly where and when it happened. And if you look at the game, he did take some shots. I can't seem to recall a particular one where he took a direct blow to the head, but certainly the impacts that he took from those Alouette's defenders, there's probably numerous ones that that could have led to some sort of injury. So 
unfortunate to see a player have to play through something like that. But a, a player of the toughness of Chad Kelly, you know he's not going to be somebody that's going to voluntarily come out unless he knows something is terribly wrong. And that's the thing. Like the spotters did not make a determination as to when this happened. They didn't see it. And football players, as any other athlete, will try to mask it because they want to stay in the game. And it's just that competitive fight, that competitive spirit that they have. And for Chad Kelly, given what reported to Three Down Nation, it's it's kind of uh, amazing to me that he put up with that through the game and that how he still managed to conduct an offense, even though at times he said he was making wrong reads and wrong calls. There has been some negative words thrown towards Chad Kelly for his performance in that Eastern final. Again, people are often quick to judge, and a recency bias dictates, what have you done for me lately? Looking at the full picture of what Chad Kelly has done in his limited time as a starting quarterback for the Toronto Argonauts has been phenomenal. He he has put up great numbers consistently throughout this season. I'm not making excuses that the concussion is what cost him the game in the Eastern final, but you can, you can't base your entire opinion on a guy of how he performed in one game, given the 15 wins that he had as a starter, the 16 and two record that the Argonauts had in 2023 as well. It was a a memorable season for him and a tough way to go out. Twice on downs, it was a third and one or less, and they left Chad Kelly in, something they hadn't done all season. The Alouettes, who had lost all three times to the Argonauts, in fact, had never beaten a team with a better record than them all season, turned the tide on that stat. Was it the biggest upset in CFL history? Probably not. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders in 1989 were vastly overmatched on paper, at least, when it came to their opponent. The Rough Riders were 9-9. and The Edmonton team, 16-2. and A gap of seven wins between them, and the Rough Riders won that. Ottawa, 1981, five-win team beat an 11-win Hamilton team. Had Ottawa finished the job in the Grey Cup, they would have been a five-win Grey Cup champion. They came that close, took a last-play Dave Cutler field goal for Edmonton to win. And I think of the 2001 Grey Cup game as well, the Calgary Stampeders versus the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I, again, on paper, Winnipeg should have won that game handily. An 8-10 and 10 Stampeders team took home the Grey Cup that year as well. So I wouldn't put this on that same level. The Argos had a special season. I don't want to take away anything from them. There was a lot of talk about branding them as maybe the best CFL team ever earlier when the playoffs were about to start. And I think that was a bit of hyperbole and definitely premature. Once they bring home a Grey Cup with that 16-2 and record, then you can start talking about the greatness all time. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't a fan of that kind of talk and that kind of language. It's great for Toronto as a city to see the Argonauts have this kind of success. They had the largest crowd they've ever had for an Argos game at BMO Field, over 26,000 fans. That was huge. And I really hope that that momentum carries through into the 2024 season. Chad Kelly, he vows to be better. He wants to be back and lead this team as well. That speaks volumes of his character. He's somebody that they can really build that marketability around, especially in Toronto, 
given its proximity to to Buffalo and the ties with his uncle Jim Kelly. It's a, a name recognition that's going to help. This was a positive season for the Argonauts, a disappointing and a bit premature to call them one of the greatest CFL teams ever assembled. The second game saw another rematch. The BC Lions were in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers in the West Final, and the Lions were dominated by that Winnipeg defensive line. Vernon Adams Jr. was sacked relentlessly. We found out later that he was playing on a sprained MCL, which limited his mobility. Blue Bombers were just primed, ready, and that defensive line dominated. It did. You look at the numbers for Vernon Adams Jr., 13 completions, nine sacks and three interceptions. So he had one more completion than he did a a disaster play, if you will. A very tough game. You cannot take anything away from the the toughness and character of Vernon Adams Jr. He had an outstanding performance in the semifinal against the Stampeders. Didn't have that same magic against the Blue Bombers. The defensive line for the Bombers was huge. Willie Jefferson had two tackles, two knockdowns, two sacks. Jackson Jeffcoat got in on the knockdowns causing an interception, and the sacks, you can go through that roster. Even losing Adam Big Hill late in the first half didn't slow them down. Malik Clements came in in relief, got a sack. Shane Gauthier stepped up in that linebacker spot as well, so it was really all elements of the defense. Demario Houston got another interception. Evan Holm had more pass knockdowns. Just going through that, that Winnipeg defensive roster they all had fantastic games. And again, Zach Kolaris didn't have to do too much. He just had to eliminate the mistake. So he was 14 of 21, 158 yards, zero touchdowns, zero interceptions. Another key moment in the game was midway through the second quarter when Nikalit gets through, blocks a punt, recovers it, and then is pushed into the end zone for the touchdown. The quick six changed the tenor of the game, it was an 8-3 game at that point. It went to 15-3 to right there. And but for the Hail Mary at the end of the first half when Justin McInnes catches a batted ball in the end zone for a touchdown, the BC Lions did not cross the Winnipeg 20-yard line, even the Winnipeg 30-yard line with an offensive possession. The, the Hail Mary, I mean, you can call it a lucky play. You can call it a fluke play. It was drawn up to be a throw to that corner of the end zone. BC executed it. They got a little bit lucky, probably on the tipped ball. A momentum shift for sure. The blocked punt by Nick Hallett was almost immaculate. I don't know if I've ever seen a, a player on a block come through that clean. He he was in so quickly that he didn't even get his hands on the ball. He he ran past and ended up blocking it with his hip. A real heads-up play to after you block a punt to be able to recover it and that line just continued to push and carry him through to the end zone. Um, and, and that was that was really the the third part of the game. Of course, you go into the special teams, and that was a, a big special teams play in this one. The kicking game wasn't quite as solid. We saw Sergio Castillo with a couple of misses, but the rest of that special teams roster for the Bombers had a pretty solid performance as well. Some, and I'll be one, that will argue that the BC Lions lost that football game on October the 6th in overtime when Dominique Rimes had a chance in regulation to go down 
but chose to try to continue to score a touchdown. They go to overtime as a result, and the Bombers beat them in Vancouver. If BC wins that football game, I think we might see a different result in the Western final because Winnipeg on the road was a Midland team. They lost three times, and only the last game of the season against Calgary, when Calgary had kind of mailed it in, did they ever blow out anybody on the road. The rest of the time, they were in tough. They were. That is one that I'm sure the BC Lions will reflect on as, as a turning point for them this season, and, and they really let that opportunity to clinch first get away from them. One thing that really jumped off the page at me here in this game was the Bombers' offensive line controlling the likely outstanding defensive player in the league, Matthew Betts. He was held without a tackle in this game, a real non-factor for somebody that had 18 sacks earlier this season. Third down. 110th Grey Cup is on the agenda for this Sunday. In Hamilton, the game is completely sold out. Amazing set of performers, performances coming before the game. It should be just a great time. The Turf District is going to be there as well. We wish them all the best. The Bombers are installed as eight and a half point favorites in this game. Technically, it is a road game for them. Montreal has is the hottest team in football with seven in a row going into this championship game. First time ever that the Alouettes and the Blue Bombers have met. The Winged Wheelers were playing in Grey Cups in the early 1930s. Winnipeg's showed up right after their tour was done. And the two just never seemed to get together. And in the modern era, that has never happened. One other matchup has never occurred what is it i'm going to i'll probably get killed on this one but i'm going to say hamilton and calgary have never met uh that happened nine years ago oh yeah no my bad let's go for british columbia and ottawa they have never met now in the modern era post world war ii say post bc lions entry into the league Winnipeg and Ottawa, if you want to argue that, have never met. They met in 39 and 41 during the war, but they have not met since. So that's another kind of nebulous one. It's interesting that in a nine-team league with four on one and five on the other, that you could go this long and not have two teams meet. Now, the Alouettes, of course, underdogs. They were huge underdogs going into the East Final, 10.5-point underdogs in that game they don't seem to be phased by that status we cannot talk about the Alouettes without talking about Mark Antoine Ducroix uh, Tyrese Beverett Darnell Sankey Sean Lemon that defense guys everywhere on that team that are just special and the way they're playing the way they're understanding Noel Thorpe's defense they are scary they are. Uh, the eight and a half point spread is a bit high in my opinion, because I'm not even sure if either team is going to score nine points, let alone win by nine points, the way these defenses have played over the last couple of weeks. If you look at the history of these two teams head to head this year, 
Montreal has only mustered six points on offense in the two games. Now, they did score 17 in the second meeting between these two teams, and that is because Marc-Antoine de Croix had interception returns for touchdowns. We see that week in and week out from this guy. They are going to have to repeat the performance that they had against the Argonauts to have a chance in this one. Again, I don't see Cody Fajardo in that offense putting up a lot of points. Zach Kolaris, I was looking at some some stats since he joined the Bombers. In the playoffs, they're 7-1. and one. He's only passed for over 200 yards in four of those games. He's at six touchdowns, seven interceptions, so not huge numbers. But again, the potential is there for the Bombers to start racking up points if, if that offense gets rolling. Claris doesn't have to be special. He just needs to be smart. And one thing that stood out to me in the, in the Western final was once Brady Oliveira established the run early on in the game, I don't think Winnipeg really felt that they were in danger of losing the lead. And you saw Zach take some deep shots to Nick Dembski, to Kenny Lawler. If one or two of those attempts became completions, that game was going to go into blowout territory. I see the similar situation here, but they do have to be wary of that Alouette's defense and make sure when they're taking those deep shots, it's a one-on-one situation and not throwing into any kind of double coverage. Jason Moss inherited it a very interesting situation when he came to Montreal. He's hired as head coach, and then the ownership turns over to the CFL right in front of free agency. So he loses his starting quarterback, Trevor Harris, who he'd known from his tour in Edmonton, winds up getting Cody Fajardo, who had been courted by the Toronto Argonauts. I'm amazed at what he's been able to do. We often talk about the idea that coaches want to bring in their own staff. They want philosophically the same people looking at the situation as they do. And yet he left everybody intact when he got the job. Now, partly because of the endorsement of the GM, Danny Machocha, that he went with this. But it still takes some serious courage to say, okay, these guys are in place. I trust them, even though I've never worked with them. Jason Moss spoke at length about that in the head coaches conference earlier this week. The question asked to him was about how he felt inheriting that coaching staff. He very quickly corrected them that he didn't inherit that staff. He had the option to make changes if he wanted to. Jason Moss has a history with Danny Machocha dating back to his days as a quarterback in this league as well. He was comfortable with having those conversations with his general manager. And through that and and through getting to know the coaches was quite comfortable moving forward with them. The coaches conference if you get a chance to watch it i have a a appreciation for the genuine respect that both coaches have for each other they they knew each other through playing against each other as players they were on the argonauts coaching staff together in 2012 won a gray cup on that coaching staff as well there's a, a palpable fondness and friendship between these two guys you weren't going to get any kind of the bulletin board material, if you will, from either one of them spouting off. It was a very respectful conference, but but very a lot of information given and and a lot of respect uh, shared between those two. You mentioned Zach Kolaris and his playoff record. Cody Fajardo, this will be his first Grey Cup start. Zach Kolaris, this will be his fifth, and he's two and two coming into this. The Blue Bombers, I don't know if they're value at eight and a half point favorites. Nick Dembski may be limited. 
Uh, Rashid Bailey was almost non-existent in that West final because of injury. It's given that Adam Big Hill probably is not going to play. It just makes you wonder how that defense is going to be orchestrated because let's face it, it's, it's Adam Big Hill that marshals everybody. It is. He's he's the general out there. He's the captain on field for that defense, calling the shots and calling the plays. There's no way you're going to keep him out of the stadium or off the sideline, even if he had to cut that foot off to be there. He was gonna he's going to be there in some capacity. Losing him on field will be a big loss from that perspective. As far as the the talent of the linebacking core for Winnipeg, I don't see it being a huge drop off. In, in the regard of athletic ability and ability to make a tackle. But it's that it's the intangibles that he brings when he's on the field that is going to be felt. There's a lot of respect for Adam Big Hill by a lot of all-star players on that Winnipeg defense. It's going to be a huge hole to fill um, from, from the leadership perspective. But at the same time, Mike O'Shea has built a culture on this team that I believe is going to help them band together, even if he's not able to play. Zach Calaris seemed almost giddy at winning the West Final because of what happened in the fourth quarter in the 2022 Grey Cup, where his stat line was two interceptions and a blocked field goal in the fourth quarter. I'm wondering if there's this idea of redemption in his mind that I want to get this right. There likely is, and and that's one of the things that you're never going to get any of these players to admit, given what they have been instructed by Mike O'Shea and, and the way he operates this team. There's been a lot of questions thrown at them about how special it is to go to four straight Grey Cups. Their responses have all been very similar of we're looking at this one as one Grey Cup appearance. They talk about how it's not the same team because of all the changes that you do you do see on your roster year to year. There are several players that this is their first appearance in the Grey Cup. And they have to like their chances. And of course, Zach Kolaris being champion is the first time that a quarterback has made it to four straight Grey Cups. However, you could argue that Orville Burke, and there's a name that probably very few remember, also went to four in a row. But in that mix, he had a two-game total point Grey Cup in 1940. So technically, he did start four in a row from 39 to 41, but two of those games were played in the same season. Remember, in the West Final, it was a sold-out IG field, and the crowd there is just horrid for any other team coming in because they cannot get their signals out. This is the Grey Cup in Hamilton, where most likely there's going to be a little bit of bias towards the Montreal Alouettes, so the Bombers aren't going to get that home field advantage that they're so used to. And I wonder how, and it's sort of the same thing they went through in Regina last year, where even though Winnipeg was the closest center of the two playing, there was a lot of anti-Winnipeg sentiment in the crowd. One thing that's got to help them out, and, and Mike O'Shea described the Winnipeg fans as relentless in that Western final, and, and they were. He, um, Adam Big Hill says it's the loudest he has heard a crowd in his professional football career. One thing that has to help Winnipeg at this point, though, is they have gone into Hamilton in a Grey Cup and beat the Hamilton Tiger Cats recently in this run as well. So the fact that it's not even the Tiger Cats, but there are many guys on this roster who went into Hamilton previously, beat the Tiger Cats in a Grey Cup. They're not going to be intimidated by this crowd, no matter how much it turns in favor of the Alouettes. 
they know how to get the job done. They beat the Tiger Cats in overtime that year. They did not clock them like they had the year before. After all of that, now we're getting to the game itself. I'm almost putting the house that you're going to think the Blue Bombers are going to win, but will they cover? That is the tough question. As I said, the way these defenses are playing, I I don't see this being a high-scoring game to cover that spread. It might be a a game that's a a 21-9 to game, which would give them the spread. I believe the the Bombers will get it done. I'm going to pick them to cover on this one, even though they're not often a team that wins by huge margins on the road. The upset by the Alouettes has to give them a little bit of confidence. They can't get overconfident. I like their chances against the Owls in this one, so Bombers to cover. If you throw out the three losses that they had on the road, the Bombers' average margin of victory on the road was 8.5 points. Can Montreal do to Winnipeg in the first quarter what they did to Toronto and get them guessing themselves? If they can, if it's Decois, Beverett, somebody out there that makes a big play and turns the field around and even gets a score out of it. Can they rattle the Blue Bombers? If they can, then Montreal's in this game. Winnipeg will not cover. I'm not convinced that the Blue Bombers, as you say, with their veteran presence, will get rattled that much. In that game that they won in Hamilton in overtime, they were on the verge of losing that game, but for a touch of a kickoff that it netted a team a single point, And a choice to give up a single point by Hamilton when they didn't really need to. And they went down and they could have kicked a field goal to win that football game, but they were having to kick a field goal to tie. I want a good game. I want a close game. I want a game that we'll be happy to talk about next week. But my fear is Winnipeg will win big. One thing that you touched on a little bit there and and something that has impressed me the most about this Winnipeg team over their last four seasons is that they do not get shaken easily. They have been down in games by multiple scores. They've been down in games by over 20 points. They've been down by two scores late in a game and they don't panic. They continue with their game plan and find a way to win. So even if this is a tight game, I expect Winnipeg to do what they do best and, and control the fourth quarter you might see a lot of Brady Oliveira early and you might see a lot of him late and that's going to be the difference maker. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.